Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Chris Smith. Welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. I'm also, and I'm freely, I'm going to freely admit this, I'm also a guilty podcast host, as uh, while this is the first time you'll be hearing Chris Smith on the podcast, it'll be the second time I will have, because like an idiot that I am, I did some bad digital management. That's all I'm going to call it. And it's a, it's a euphemism. For, nope. But uh, I survived to live, live the day, and Chris was very gracious to come back on. And it got me thinking as to, like, watching your movies. So I was, uh, 2004, Creep, I took my wife to see the press screening. And I've not seen her turn away from the screen as many times. She's not as big a horror fan as me. So uh, you appalled my wife with Creep. <laughs> Eight years before Happy Death Day was claiming the first ground, Groundhog Day horror mantle. There's... Triangle's Terror Loop Nightmare aboard the Ocean Liner, one of my favourites. And then I was thinking, I took my nephew Jude to see uh, Get Santa back in 2014. I've seen I've had a, I've had a lot of good fun with uh, your films on the big screen. Um, and uh, your latest film, The Banishing, hits UK cinemas on digital platforms March 26th. Dear God, thank you for bringing us together as a family. Hope you're both settling in well. Yes, thank you, Father. I'll make it a home in every room. Amen. Over there is bedroom. That is the living room. And this is the dining room. What's this room? You're not to go there. You're forbidden. What's the time, Mr. Wolf? Three o'clock. What's the time, Mr. Wolf? One o'clock. What's the time, Mr. Wolf? Eddie. There has been a man seen in town this afternoon. He's a charlatan, a storyteller. He's dangerous. You've got fight in you, Vicar. But are you going to need it? Linus? Well, have you placed a young couple in that house? They shouldn't be there. Have you seen things in the night, perhaps? You heard whispers? You're talking about the voices? What did you hear? It was nothing. Created by that man to mess with our heads. How many more have to die before you do something? Lighter! The sake of your daughter. There is evil here. Presuming we're not cinemas, are we, at the moment? I think there's a few screens, but we're not there yet, so I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know whether there's a, a plan to, when they start to slowly stagger, that this will be one of those that will get more of a kind of 1970s, you know, it might appear on screen four for a couple of weeks. I okay. think so. So it's after, so after, after April, is it April, middle of April, isn't it, when things start? Yeah, I think up. they're going to be, um, I think they're going to be sort of, you know, before the big, big sort of studio movies start to land. 
because they'll be more cautious because of the costs. I think they're going to be slowly putting in slightly smaller films before that. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think what you call it, Saint Maud is proof that audiences will go and see the, the, yeah. the indie films if the, if that's what's available at the cinemas. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, it's funny what you mentioned, um, Happy Death Day, because uh, when I was in the final throes of financing Triangle, we were uh, we just made Severance and uh, Black and uh, Creep. I was in LA and uh, we, we got given this script called Half to Death, which was Happy Death Day in its no original way. title. And um, and they, they really loved Severance and they were like, you know, this is a film, with, this is something that would interest you. And I read it and I really liked it. And I was like, you know what? I've just kind of written a film which is in the same world. And back then thinking you couldn't do everything all at once, which I would have done now. I'd have done both now. I would have done that one and yeah, uh, yeah, Triangle. Yeah. I didn't turn it down. I wasn't formally offered it, but I could have gone for it. Wow. And I probably would have gone it. And uh, and then it, then it went into turnaround for ages and ages. And then it came back as, as Happy Death Day. Um, and happy death day too, I think. Yeah, happy happy death day to you as the uh, the smart <laughs> is that what it's the, the smart sequel name they chose. That's good. <laughs> I like a good title like that. The banishing I saw at Frightfest. Um, sadly, a virtual version <laughs> of it, but uh, I reviewed it and I I said that the banishing is a classy period horror that oozes confidence in the directorial choices my podcast guest makes. This kind of creepy story emanating from past dirty deeds. Generations ago, coupled with such a strong cast of oddball characters, what British horror does best, to my mind. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely a kind of, there's definitely an amicus kind of hammer. There's definitely traces of Peter Cushing in Sean Harris's performance. I mean, I think definitely we've, uh, you know, when, when Sean Harris got involved, he sort of said about the, for the Harry Reid character, it was like, you know, I think I might go for it. You know, I think I might... Mm do something quite big. And I mentioned that one of my favourite ever performances was Anthony Hopkins in in Coppola's Dracula. You know, he's very big, but real, you know, and, he, and he's essentially playing the Peter Cushing role, Anthony Hopkins. So so Harry Reid is very much a sort of Van Helsing in a way. And I, I think um, Sean really lent into that. No, I, I um, the, the note I made to myself was, it feels like Peter Cushing in Bother Boots for the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There you go. Definitely. I mean, out of interest, how much, how much of 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 what we see of Harry Reid is is um, is on the page, and what was it that uh, Sean was bringing to you? You're going, go on, give us more of that, Sean. Yeah, so so you know, we again, we wanted to make the character not just you know, Sean's got a lot of you know, there's a lot of exposition that he has to get out of the way in a way. Yeah, and so he, in terms of setting up what this character knows when he arrives, and so we wanted to give him a little bit of a bit more colour so Sean was kind of I think Sean was watching Strictly Come Dancing or I think I, I know he was and then he calls me on a Saturday night about an hour after Strictly's finished and says you know I think I should do the Argentinian tango Chris and it wasn't until we paid for him to have tango lessons that uh, we realised he just thought of it spur of the moment while watching Strictly Come Dancing so we, we all of those little traces um, Sean brought like the dancing but he wanted the character to feel very modern very out of his time, um, you know, tango dancing in, in was a sort of, you know, kind of a deviant activity in this country. Mm. Um, and Argentinian women would would sell their skills effectively in, in, in a situation that had a sort of sleazy connotations, but nothing wrong, nothing kind of sexual happened. It was often lonely men 
wanting to dance in the loft with with women. I was, was going to so, say it's got it's got a, yeah. it's got a really sort of sensual but yet seedy quality. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it's the opening credits, isn't it? It's like you're you're in the opening credits over it. It's amazing. You resist it. I mean, we we shot it and then it was like, no, we've got to use it. And uh, so yeah, we used it as the credits. Um, on a little ta- just a little tangent, you made me realise a funny story. I want to tell you that about Peter Cushing is going backwards is that I took my son to see um, Rogue One and, you know, they spent all that money bringing Peter Cushing back to life. And mm. My son was about seven at the time and we were in the um, in the IMAX and he just leant across to me really loudly and said, Daddy, why is that man a cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> and it just made me laugh that they'd spent millions and millions of pounds doing a brilliant job on Peter Cushing, but a seven-year-old saw straight through it. <laughs> In the IMAX, I there's no there's that. no harsher critic, is there? No, no. Why is that, Daddy? Why is that man a cartoon? That's what he said. Now the yeah. uh, the screenplay was written by Dean Lyons and Ray Bogdanovich. So, um, what what attract what what was it attracted you to the script as a director? And and had you had any previous interest in the Borley Rectory stories? No, in fact, I the Borley Rectory story, the the idea of this is a true story. I, I'm not in any way a believer in the supernatural, so I kind of. I mean, it, it, to me, it's a it's a really good in joke to say a true story. Mm. You know, there may have been things that went bump in the night at Morley Rectory, but um, it certainly wasn't ghosts. And um, but but I love ghost stories in the sense of uh, the non traditional ones. I like you know the Shining and um, even Don't Look Now. I, I look at it as a ghost story and and films that are about your past catching up on you and the demons you bury away. Uh, and so what, when I read the script, I, what I was it was much more of a kind of, um, had much more of a quality of the woman in black to it. And we didn't have a, an enormous budget to make the film, so we had to be very careful of how we approached it. And I, you know, fought, you know had experience enough to know that if you reach for something that you don't have the budget for, you often will just fail and not do what you want to do well, and that you're better off finding it sort of more, I guess, I would say imaginative, but more stuff that more, you know, is more inventive that comes more from within the characters mm. than paying for a massive CGI birds or bringing back the spirit of Peter Cushing. I was going to say, all seven-year-olds might, might spot the, yeah. spot the, the joints. So, so, so we kind of, we kind of said, okay, well, let's, let's, you know, let's pull it much more back to Marianne's story. Yes, there are real. There is a real haunting going on in this house. It, this film is a supernatural film. There are supernatural elements to it, um, but but very much it's um, yeah, the, very much the horror and the scares come from from her past. The backdrop to the haunting and the experiences of the people in the rectory is the is like a war backdrop. Is there's like the you've picked an interesting point in history. So what what are you trying to tap into there with that element of the film's narrative? Yeah, so one of the things that initially attracted me to the script was that it was set in nineteen uh, in the early thirties, um, mm. just in the outbreak of war. I think it's thirty six, I mm. think, or is it thirty eight? So it's one of those two, but it's very close. And obviously, fasc- the fascists have built up, been building up around Europe. Um, I felt it was very, um, you know, relevant to to what's happening today. You know, we grew up. I grew up, as I'm sure you did. You know, thinking, my God, that that could never happen in this country. We could never have fascism. We could never have, uh, you know, that wouldn't happen in the so-called West, even though Germany was the West. And now you see what's happened in this country recently, the rise of the right. And you've seen it definitely play out recently in the January 6th riots in 
in the capital, the insurgency in the capital of America, yeah. fueled by white supremacy. And so I just felt the film had a very relevant thing to say about um, there is this horror that's building up behind the scenes. Um, uh, and we're, we're seeing it play out through prejudice and secrets in this one family. But there's a bigger canvas that it's playing against. And so the film mentions, you know, throughout there are nods and and kind of sequences that, that mention fascism. There's a sequence in the pub with Sean where he accuses Father Malachi, played by John Lynch, that that he's in the pocket of the fascists. And and that was all very relevant in in the country, in our country at that time. Um mm. And it wasn't a, a it wasn't clear cut that we would be the inverted commas you know we would be the good guys. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't yeah. a you know there was a real there was a real uh, there was a real sort of hidden belief of nationalism in this country, which is what was used to good effect to fight the Nazis in the end. But it could have gone the other way, and I think it it we're just leaning into that and showing that these undercurrents are, are there, and at the end we sort of imply that. The, if there was this force that could turn man against woman, woman against woman, and gen- generally harness people's the, the, the bad side of people, the Nazis would want that. So we sort of play that idea that that maybe there's something in this house that would be of use to yeah. fascists. Well, no, I mean, and the interesting again, say the interesting thing about the timing of of where the film set is, and obviously the rise of fascism across Europe, is that Europe is still a relatively young country as a as a post. You know, monarchy yeah. kind of, you know, Prussia, Austro-Hungarian Empire, all those things had fallen in the eighteen in the nineteenth century. So the countries that established out of that were all new. I mean, I mean, I think I've t- there's a book I've read uh, about the history of Europe where Winston Churchill is saying, "Oh, it's far better that Italy has fascism than communism because that was about the battle of those two ideals." And it was almost like mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can see through yeah. your story here, the church is betting its money on fascism because it knows. I guess what happened in Russia with the revolution is that mm. it ain't going to survive. It ain't going to survive very long. Is under a that's communist what, that's regime. What that's, what, that's what happened with the Catholic Church and, the, and yeah. the kind of not standing up against Hitler, and and it would have made a difference, you know. But mm. they felt that the, it was the bigger, the greater good. It was better than communism, which didn't want the church. So it was kind of like, yeah, it's, and we, yeah. So so we just we just. I mean, I was very keen that that element of it was in the film. And it's it's not fully explored. It's only hinted at. It's only kind of alluded to. But I think it's still important to raise politics and make people look at it and say, look, things aren't, these aren't the, everything's not safe. Mm. You know, in the end, they, they have an optimistic prayer for Europe at the end that they pray, pray that the peace will be found. Mm. And, you know, that all they've got left is prayer. And look how that turned out. So it's kind of, you know, it's 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 quite it's quite pessimistic at the end, but but yeah, I think it's necessary. Um, I um, I spoke to screenwriter Tamsin Reffin on the podcast about her film Albatross, which was Jessica Brown Finley's first feature film back in 2011. Mm-hmm. And Jessica has also played alongside Sean Harris in 2014's Jamaica in the TV series as well. So you're bringing mm-hmm. two actors together. I mean, and and, and for her character Marion. There's a lot. There's a lot she's got to sort of bring into the film. You know, there's not just a case of you know of just being scared or not scared because of a ghost. She's got, you know, she's got to unpack the individual strong woman, the social pariah of of being out of wedlock in those times, and then the unusual relationship she has to endure with her husband, which, which is kind of, it was a blessing, I guess, when it was set up. But obviously, when she's 
under the same roof, the nightmares unfolding alongside the supernatural yeah, yeah. and the horror that obviously ultimately befalls her. So I guess I guess what was your conversations with 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 Jessica around that? Yeah, we do we again we I mean Jess has done absolutely nothing wrong. I mean mm. Jess as in Marianne has yeah, done yeah, absolutely yeah. nothing wrong. But she is the she is judged by both the village. She carries a lot of weight, doesn't she? She carries a lot of weight. Yeah, she does. And at the end, she's like, I'm not going to, you know, she basically, in a way, gets more in line with, with Sean Harris's character because she's like, I'm going to, I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm not going to, um, I'm not, I'm going to stand up for what's right and what I believe in. And, and so, and when she does that, that's the power, you know, she has the, she has the ability in a way to suddenly approach these demons with a bit more strength. And um, I think that's what it's saying is you, you can get, there's one thing living in a judgmental society, but are you judging yourself? Are you carrying shame with you? Mm. You know, and you have to look at this, this what's happened again recently in America with these awful shootings over the weekend in Atlanta. And it's like, this guy's like, has shame for the way he feels sexually. And it's kind of like, I think that we still have those things. People still do terrible things as a result of the consequences of belief and what they believe in and, and I think that, yeah, I think that, that she's she kind of, I mean, I think Jess is phenomenal in the film. Mm. And I think at the end, she she sort of says, she looks to Sean Harris's character and is like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're truer to yourself than all the men in the village, you know? This kind of strange guy that rocks up wearing suede and <laughs> he dances in in, in attics with the, I was going to say, yeah, because in, in, in a weird way, it's 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 almost like a coming of age for Marion, isn't it? Because she's 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 kind of bounced along and just ended up in situations yeah. that to to her own making and sometimes not, but from what we understand of her character. But then by the end of it, there's a, there is a little bit of a sort of coming of age, isn't there? In a way, there really is. Yeah, and she's kind of she's played it to their rules and eventually just says, "Look, I'm going to live to my rules, and and you need to catch up." Mm. And 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 in the end, you do get an optimistic sense that the husband accepts his responsibility in those in those things. And did did or didn't kill, you know. What I like and I've always liked in movies is you you you're not sure really whether you know he's got his hands. I want to give too many spoilers away, but has the husband done some of these things, and is he personally responsible for for what's happened, or did the house make him do it? And it, it all comes back down to you know God made me do it, that or in The Shining is it is Jack Nicholson haunted, or is he haunted within? Is he as he lost just his mind. No, I think that's a that's a help. That's a that's a really exciting part of the film is that while there are answers offered, yeah, they're not concrete. No. And you can also interpret it your own way if you want, because you can read it in different ways. You can, and I think that yeah, if you actually dig into what's what you've seen afterwards, but you know, it it, it does slowly build up, but once it starts, it, it leaves a lot of questions. It leaves as many questions as answers that you can. Yeah, you can put your own sort of haunted, haunted uh, meanings to. Yeah. Now you've you, you mentioned him already, Bishop Malachy, who's played by John Lynch, uh, an actor I first came across in um, in Hardware back in 1990, and obviously you've had experience of working with him on Black Death. <clears throat> now he is like almost like as 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 we've suggested from what we were saying earlier, he's like the proxy for 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 fascism, the Trojan horse, as as it were, and he mm. is his own personal sort of dogma isn't he he's it's yeah. it may well it may well have a church uniform on but it's essentially the the, the world according to the bishop and and you will do as he says because he will yeah, have yeah, dirt, he will have dirt on you but it's never easy being nasty 
without being tempted to go big. And I think what's brilliant about John Lynch's performance is that it's an understated vileness that makes him scary, not his ability to shout and scream or point guns or show knives. It's really his power is his evil. I mean, it's all credit to how good John is. I mean, John Lynch is one of my favourite actors and there's a scene in the movie where he... He's in a pool, he's in a snooker table, and he, John just comes in and we do the scene there, and I say, maybe, John, you should start to play with the balls, a bit like in there's a great scene with uh, um, in Eyes Wide Shut uh, that I love with, um, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, the amazing, the, who's the director of Tootsie? Um, he's also an actor. Uh, oh, I can't remember his name. Damn, shame on me. But anyway, he, he's having this scene with the with the snooker balls with uh, Tom Cruise, and he's saying to Tom Cruise, "What if I was to tell you that this 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 hooker, this girl, that uh, she was paid for, and then there was no one really died, and that it was all it was all a yeah, fiction yeah, yeah. that you're not aware of." And and I said, "That's my sort of reference for the scene, John." And so John starts to do this scene where he was to say, "What if I was to tell you, Linus, that you know." You know, he basically tells him what it is, but without threatening him. And then suddenly John just throws the ball, smashes the balls really it's loud. Great, and, and you sort of jump and 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 that's about as, as violent as John gets in the in the whole thing. But you understand that there is violence in him, but not from him. Mm. He has the power to to explode into violence. And like there's another scene later where he finds Jessica Brown Finley's character, Marianne, and he's on his own. And I was sort of encouraging him to be sleazier in a way and and to make her feel more threatened. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't have to do any of that, Chris. I don't have to lean in and and actually physically uh, make her intimidated. The less I do, the more scary I'll be. And, and that's the sign of a really great actor when you, you know, he tells you something that he's, and, he, and you, you can see that on the camera. You don't have mm. to physically touch the girl or kind of be too close. He just looks at her and... <laughs> She starts to cry nearly by the end of the scene. And all of that just came out of the two actors. It wasn't, um, I didn't ask either of them to do that. They both found their way through the scene themselves. It was wonderful. I mean, and I think that's testament to the film, I think. There's a, there's a lot of sort of almost vignettes within within your film that you could isolate and go, you know, that's just, that's a little film in of itself. I mean, you mentioned the pub scene. Yeah. And certainly where... Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Where, where Sean stands on his chair to uh, to lambast and make his point is it's just a wonderful moment it is and you know it weirdly do that scene and uh, again I won't give too much away but it's a lovely moment but you when you're doing it you know you because it's dealing with with fascism pretty head on you it, it, you realize that they, these that, that it's real evil that you're dealing with and 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 the power of what he does is made you know, is is encapsulated because of history, because of everything we know that that does happen to that period. It, it makes the film scary because it, it's a if you reflect if it, as a reflection of today. I I really think the scariest thing that is is what men do to men in the real world. It's that's that's why I find that much much more scarier than ghost stories. What happens in the I'm going to say I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the Manchester writer David Britton at all. Um, he, he produced the no. book um, Lord Horror, which, as far as I know, is the last book anyone's ever been um, sent to prison for under the Obscene Publication Act in the late eighties. And it was a sat- it was a dark satire on Lord Horhor. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed him about writing, and he wrote a, a subsequent one, which whose title escapes me. And um, and he and I said, you know, why why did you choose this route with this man? evil and you know and he'd gone on record as saying about how you know frankenstein and vampires don't matter anymore it's like and basically he was saying you know once you've got hold of the idea of what humans have done 
in 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 a holocaust uh, on following <laughs> hitler you're like the yeah. werewolf and dracula ceases to be scary because Absolutely. man because man is scary no and in, in fact they become they they actually become comfort blankets in a, in a good way that you actually i think they you know they, yes they are less scary but they are it's more fun to be able to be scared with them mm. because they they ask if you know the even my, some of my favorite fun that's saying that all of my favorite horrors uh, werewolf films. <laughs> you talk about the howling; they they all allude to a sleazier side of life. I like, that's why I particularly like the howling. Mm. Is it, there's grubbiness around the edge of the howling, yeah. which I really like. So often, yeah, even even <laughs> I, if I made a werewolf film, I'd still want some of the real world to to creep in around the edges because I think it makes it scarier. I think. Yeah, because 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 the hu- the human being is is a flawed species isn't it mm. <laughs> as much Absolutely, as we think we've yeah. got power over over everything else yeah no we don't obviously we've established it's, it's set during just on the outbreak of world war Two. so setting a film in, in in a period like that um and for the for the for the filmmakers listening in can you describe some of the production challenges that that presented in terms of making it in the present and any tricks or cheats about the shoot that you could you could tell yeah, us about? i mean we as i say i think i, I can't remember what the total budget ended up at it was definitely it was definitely the lowest budget i've ever worked with probably by probably half of the budgets that i'm used to and mm. um and and we obviously have to do a period drama which has its own set of costs and so and those costs aren't just you know hiring old cars hiring costumes uh you know also when you have a reduced budget i'm used to especially with the big tv work i've been doing and also often with my films i always had a steady cam standing by or a, I, I actually usually had all the toys at my disposal mm. and this film I, I really didn't and so it was a real kind of almost go back to film school and and be really specific with what you shoot and find the exact right framing for what you want to do and and that and that continues down to you know production design there's no way we could have uh designed all of the rooms you see so what we did is we fortunately the uh, the big house you see and there's a german section at the very end where you see this huge stately home Mm. natural fact that big stately home you see that's in germany in the film is the main estate that we were on and the house that we use as the rectory is the sort of uh, the, you know, it's the kind of back door, servants' quarters, entrance, church. It's all, it is the sort of rectory entrance to that big stately home. Yeah. And so what we then did, we'd have like 30 bedrooms and we obviously don't need all of them. We don't want the house to feel that big, but we would choose the, the rooms we liked for the wallpaper and for the way that room looked. And we'd say, okay, let's use what's there. Let's make this room Marianne's bedroom. Let's make this room Linus's bedroom and then not see the rest of the house. So we had to, so we had this huge house, but we shot it in a way that you don't see all of it. Um, in actual fact, we were filming in a, in this big stately home and, and, you know, and so to, to get it down to a budget, again, I don't know what the budget exactly was in the end, uh, but, it, but to get it down to, it was certainly a budget that a first time filmmaker could, could make a film on. And, and um, just try to think, you know, like I said, with the script, let's not bring in a hundred, um, CGI ravens tapping on the window that was in the original script as mm. beautiful as an image as that might be as Hitchcockian as that might be you can't do it mm. so don't try instead th- be inventive with the script and then and then use what you have you know use the space if you're staying in this stately home shall we stay on the grounds as as actors and directors we all sort of we didn't live together we all had our own 
space. Yeah. Because you literally kill each other if you're working all day. And then, you know, you can do that when you're making your student films or your or you you can't do it with in a in a professional context when mm. you're yeah you're bringing actors in from all but, over but the world. But out of interest, so. though, was was the, so you say you used two sides of the building. So that was that was identified before as as part of the location scouting and, and pre production. It was like, oh, actually, we can do two for one here if we use this one location. Well, what we actually said was no. We, we, it was even harder than that. It's is the this estate is in Skipton, just outside of uh, Leeds. Mm. Absolutely everything we're going to do has to be within the estate. The only time we left the estate, and by the estate, I mean the grounds of the wall of one of these great big houses that have been in the same family for 800 years. Mm. They've got, you know, I always say in Yorkshire, they love a wall. There's walls (laughs) everywhere in Yorkshire. Everyone's got, that's my bit of land. They put a wall around it. And you sometimes see fields that are the size of a football pitch with a big stone wall around it. That's mine, that is. And so these big estates have got walls around them. The only time we stepped outside was to do the cinema sequence. And that was that, the exterior of that cinema is actually in Skipton. And the rest of it was on the grounds of this estate. Um, So it feels very much like a small... Um, kind of all creatures, great and small, kind of environment in a way of, of cottages and and yeah. So we had the use of all of that. So we never had to play for road closures. We never had to pay for all those things. We had we had mm. all that, and that was a decision made by production and myself early on, so that we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't overreach and spend our budget in the wrong way. And we still struggled. We still had we still ran into major problems with that without the money because. Once I'd started to make the, the film to that standards and using that very classical, you know, kind of static frames often or using the tracks and and not, not just shooting from the hip, you have to continue it. And then you obviously, when you get to an action scene or a horror scene that needs 25 shots, yeah, you, you have to do 25 shots because that, otherwise you have to change the sequence. And what you can't get rid of in horror is you still need those moments of, those jump moments and mm. you know we had to we really struggled to to make our days i'll tell you that so how how did you what was the conversation between you and sarah cunningham in terms of cinematography then to talk for, obviously with these with these levels of restrictions in terms of you know you couldn't just go where you wanted so it, obviously to make what you had more interesting and exciting for you as the filmmaker what was the conversation like about about how you shoot the place well we i wanted to use we were very keen and so did Sarah. We wanted to give it a very distinct kind of wide angle lens uh, look. We know we knew that that would give us restrictions. So the conversation was really about how do we make this space feel kind of give it an, a, a slight Polanski feel to the lens to, so that the, the, the interior of the house, we don't have the money to, to change everything and put, you know, in the cliche world, we don't have cobwebs everywhere and we don't have that kind of, we go down into the cellar and so, you know, it's, we have to use what's there. And so I think our conversation mainly with myself and Sarah was really about, let's get this on the, let's get some nice old fashioned lenses, wide angle lenses and just use those. So that the, the film has a kind of distinct, slightly hallucinatory feel mm. inside the house that, that, and then the, the longer the, the film goes on, the sort of wider, the wider the angle seems to get. And it, I think it helped. Yeah. That's something that comes up a lot in in the podcast. The idea of old fashioned lenses, like out of out of interest from a filmmaker point of view, what is it about modern lenses that 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 don't service a film as well as the, as an old fashioned one? I mean, it's an expression I hear all the time. Well, what it is, I I think, which is entirely my perspective, is 
you know, there's the big lie about that that the Trump spouts in the American election, and there's the big lie about HD, where we were all, where somehow equipment was sold that everyone was told, yeah, we want to see really clear, we want to see 4K, we want everything to be really sharp, and you know, look, here's a 4K version of The Godfather. And oh, what's that? You can see, you know, you can see light stands now. And there was a reason you couldn't see anything. It was the way they'd lit it was really dark. And yeah. and I think that I think the modern lenses are the the, the not all of them, the mm. ones that we can afford. There are there are the ones that people like Chris Nolan uses, or he probably uses the old fashioned ones as well. But but there are there are modern ones that, that give you the exact thing you that the old lenses give you. I think what the old lenses give you is they get rid of a lot of that clarity. They give you distortion. They give you some of the chaos um, that old films would would have, would be dealing with. Mm. It, it, you know, our our job is made so much easier by the fact that we can we've got a, a DI post production budget where you can go into a digital grade, put in vignettes and shape the film. Again, you know, and put in hidden hidden lights that were in there, false lights that aren't there. There's a certain amount of things you can do. I mean, a filmmaker a filmmaker can see these are fudgy, fake things yeah but often you can get them past an audience and they won't know and you can certainly get yourself out of jail and i think what these older lenses give you is uh, they just give you that kind of texture that, that it's missing that you that, that you know if you're making a film that's shot i mean if i could have shot this film on 35 millimeter and using the lenses from the 1960s or something i would have absolutely done that yeah. i couldn't afford to use 35 mil to make this film but i sure as hell i'm going to try and get the old lenses on it but listen they're a lot more expensive and they come at a fight with the production because yeah because you sort of go really am i going to see the difference no you're not going to see the difference per se but you'll feel it will feel more credible and i think that's what i'm most proud of in terms of you know it does have this old-fashioned feel this film it does feel old and in its both in its design and in, and its visual, uh, yeah. I suppose you've got you've got to serve that perception of the period we're looking at. There's no point in looking like Blade Runner if it's meant to be 1938, is there? Well, no, but but more so, it's like it, you don't want it to look like British television either, because it's well, you know, with this British period to a penny. And why do they all look mostly eggy when you see them on TV? Is because they're just shot with modern lenses, and it oh, all yeah. just looks fake just doesn't look like the old days. And then you see one that does, and you go, oh my God, that looks good. And it's like, oh, oh I see, it's directed by so-and-so. And, you know, and that's the difference. <laughs> you, watch, you mean you watch, you watch Barry Lyndon and you go, oh, right, I see. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, exactly. Barry Lyndon being the case in point. But even the sort of slightly more lit, more daylighty scenes of Barry Lyndon, which um, you know, all that stuff at the beginning with the guys in the with the soldiers when he's joining the army. It, it almost looks like a reconstruction. It, it kind of feels, in a weird way, phony, but in a, in a but but it also feels totally real, mm. but not real as in, it's, sort of, it's more than real, mm. I think. I think that's what it has. If that was all shot on modern lenses with tr- traditional cover and everyone gets a over-shoulder close-up, it would just be awful, that, that opening. Yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. But it's shot in that Kubrick way where you have to wait for it all to play out. It's genius. <laughs> Indeed, you do. Well, look, the banishing its cinemas and on digital platforms from March the twenty sixth. I am super grateful that you gave me a second chance to record a podcast. So, it's cheers fine. for uh, giving us the time. It's nice to come back and change all my answers. Although I think I, you know, I think they're pretty similar. I've got a little bit more into depth. I've got a free story about uh, about the cartoon Peter Cushion. So there you go. So it's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, I hope you all enjoy the film. Thank you very much. Linus, 
Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 